Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to this week's edition of the Aurora Energy Unplugged podcast. My name is Emma Woodward and I'm going to be leading the conversation today. I'm a project leader on Aurora's advisory team and I lead much of the work that Aurora does in the low carbon flexibility space. I'm joined here today by Catherine Raw, who is the managing director of SSE Thermal. Uh, she's been at the company since last April um, and is responsible for the strategy uh, and development of the company's flexible power generation and energy storage activities. Uh, Catherine's got a, an extensive background in the mining industry, um, having worked as both the COO and the CFO uh, for the international metals and mining firm Barrett Gold. Uh, and prior to this, she was a managing director and fund manager at BlackRock. Catherine has a, a background in uh, natural resources um, and in geological sciences, uh, having studied at the University of Cambridge um, and then undertook a, a master's in mineral project appraisal from Imperial College London. So thank you very much for joining me here today, Catherine. Thank you for having me. The topic of conversation for today is going to be on low carbon flexibility, and particularly thinking about hydrogen and gas CCS within the power sector. So I'd like to start off uh, with a question on that, Catherine. Could you just walk us through the importance of low carbon flexibility on the power sector as SSE sees it? Absolutely. Well, if we step back and look at um, power as a system, uh, just as you said. So we look at what is it that the country needs in order to be able to switch the lights on when it wants, in order to be have, have reliable electricity whenever we want it, whenever we need it. Then you're essentially looking at um, how to balance supply and demand in order to deliver it. And, and what we see is through the energy transition, that's going to change the way in which we balance supply and demand is going to change very significantly compared to where we've been over the last decade, 20 years. So what I mean by that is as renewable power, intermittent renewable power grows uh, and becomes a larger part of electricity supply. And as we see baseload supply like coal come off, Um, what you're going to see is a supply-side system that is much more intermittent. And during periods when it's not windy, it's not sunny, um, you're going to have to have backup flexible power that can respond very quickly um, to when suddenly the wind has stopped blowing. And, And we've seen just over the last few weeks how you can have very still, very cold period followed by a very windy, very rainy period all happening within the touch of a button. There's always that joke, if you ever want to see four seasons in Scotland, just stand outside. Uh, you know, so it's that, that challenge means that increasingly, as we look to the future, we're going to need the flexibility that currently is provided by things like gas CCGTs and gas peakers. But it needs to be low carbon if we're going to um, decarbonize um, uh, and have a net zero system by 2035. And so that um, is the critical 
thing to focus on that we in SSC Thermal are now focusing on is what is providing that low carbon flexibility to back up a renewables-led system, even with investments in networks and everything else to support that renewables-led system, what um, technologies are going to provide that low carbon flexibility in the future. Thank you. Yeah. And really, this does back up a lot of the work that we are doing here at Aurora um, in our scenarios where we're forecasting what the power sector might look like in a net zero world in 2035. We do also see the need for um, at least nine gigawatts of, of gas CCS by that point um, and two gigawatts of hydrogen CCGTs, um, which would be backed up by additional peaking capacity, which could be gas or could also be hydrogen based peakers. Mm -hmm. um, so we are focusing there a lot on what is going to be providing that firm capacity um, and what sort of like flexibly ramping capacity might we need um, to manage those big swings in, in intermittent renewable generation. But I would also be interested to hear your thoughts on additional system needs, because it's not just um, managing intermittent renewable generation that the grid operator is going to have to be thinking about in the future. Uh, as we are uh, looking at this at Aurora, we are also seeing a big need for synchronous capacity. So technologies that can provide inertia and, and frequency control to the system, but also the sorts of technologies that might be able to provide things like voltage control through reactive power provision, um, which we see as becoming increasingly important to the system as well. So I'd be interested to hear your views on how thermal technologies might be able to provide those sorts of services um, in relation maybe to other technologies which people are also looking at to be able to provide um, low carbon capacity. Yes yeah, so so you know we see today you know when I look at our gas power stations and actually we've just acquired Triton Power uh, as a joint venture with Equinor and uh, its project in Deeside actually is exactly what you've described it provides uh, those inertia services and, and synchronization and, it, and it's actually a, a, a turbine that is now no longer generating power but is providing those stability services to the system you, you know we see in fact, a lot of the revenues or, or additional revenues that we generate coming through providing those ancillary services to the grid in order to stabilize the system, whether it's frequency, whether it's inertia, all of these things. And, and that's increasing as we see more of this intermittent power joining uh, coming onto the system. So the challenge with other forms of flexible power batteries specifically is that they can't provide that uh, in the same way. And so then you say, OK, well, when we look at low carbon technology in the future, can it provide it in the same way? And so that's where power CCS and hydrogen um, power, when you look at the technologies they're using, ultimately, they should be able to provide that set those same services. And that's the added benefit of that low carbon thermal generation to the system. Um, so so from our perspective, uh, it is critical, not only the flexibility, but the ancillary services that it provides. The other thing, of course, is, is the black start or restoration um, uh, services that, that's provided. And, and you know, increasingly our, our engagement with National Grid is that's becoming more and more critical. You know, as we see the coal power plants that used to provide those services come off the system, uh, they're looking more and more to thermal generators through gas and then potentially the next generation of low carbon thermal in providing those same services to the system in, in the case of a blackout where you do have a situation where you've just got to reboot the system. So long answer to your question, but uh, you know that is what 
some form of low carbon thermal should be able to provide to the system going forward. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think you've, you've summarised the key points there very nicely. It's not just about managing intermittent renewable generation, but there is a lot of other things that we have to consider in order to be able to manage uh, the system in a safe and secure manner. If we think about the, the types of technologies that we want to focus on, which is specifically gas CCS plants, hydrogen CCGTs, there are obviously key differences between the way those technologies react and behave. Gas CCS is essentially a, a very similar type of technology to standard CCGTs in that the asset will be uh, burning gas, the turbine will be spinning and, and generating electricity in that manner. Carbon dioxide will still be being produced, but it will be being captured and, and stored underground post-generation. Um, post Whereas with hydrogen, it's obviously already a low carbon fuel. Um, and the, the key to be thinking about there is whether it's being generated through electrolysis, whether it's being generated through... Uh, CCS um, earlier in the process. But are you able to walk me through some of the key differences in the way those technologies then behave, sort of how different uh, differences in the technology's operating behaviour uh, might impact their costs um, and how that might impact the way that they behave um, and, and how they can provide sort of flexibility to the system? So at a high level, what both um, power CCS um, so post-combustion CCGT um, and uh, hydrogen. Um, and, and when we say hydrogen to power, we could be talking OCGT, so open cycle gas turbine or, or closed. But, but I think ultimately what both technologies have in common is that they are dispatchable firm capacity and can operate flexibly. So, so the definition of flexible is how flexible. So I, you know, I would argue both power CCS and hydrogen deliver flexible capacity. And so the question is, are you talking about minutes? Or are you talking about a half hour in terms of the level of flexibility of ramp up and ramp down? And they can generate for sustained periods and, and as we've already discussed, provide an array of other system services. So, so that's what they both have in common. And our view as a, a power provider, a networks operator, you know, hopefully as objective and uh, a company as you can get in that we, we sit across the whole spectrum of renewables, networks and thermal and storage is, is that, you know, we're technology agnostic and therefore see both of them as a solution, not one or another. We don't see them as mutually exclusive technologies. What we see is that power CCS is deliverable earlier. And what, what I mean by that is that there's one, both the policy in place um, to deliver it soon within the next five years. And that's very much around the industrial cluster CCUS process that is underway at the moment in government. And two, the technology itself is, is, is more tried and tested. You know, there are power CCS operations uh, all over the world. There are CCUS operations over the world. And so the, the step we're taking in terms of putting it into the system, operating gas turbines off it is, is relatively small, albeit still a first of a kind. It, it's not such a risk from a technological perspective. So it's got policy in its favor. It's got the potential infrastructure in its favor and it's got it, the potential technology in its favor. Hydrogen, on the other hand, is a very nascent market. So it's a huge opportunity to deliver into the low carbon network. It potentially in the future could be fossil fuel free. 
um, in that if you're producing through electrolysis, through green uh, hydrogen, uh, you, you can take gas out of the system altogether. And so that's obviously a positive if that is your ultimate goal. I'm not saying that is the UK's ultimate goal. I'm just saying that that has that element of being a permanent solution in that respect. Um, but and, and the technology actually is relatively straightforward. You know, there's no reason why hydrogen shouldn't be able to be, you know, a, a burn through a turbine in, in exactly the same way as gas. You just need to adapt it uh, accordingly. Uh, but what we haven't seen is significant um, uh, hydrogen to power at scale. Um, mainly because it's been difficult to get the hydrogen and store the, the sufficient amount of hydrogen in order to be able to actually illustrate um, that flexible, reliable, sustained generation of power through hydrogen. And what is lacking is also policy at the moment for hydrogen to power. We've got the beginnings of a business model for hydrogen production, but we don't have a business model for storage. And at the moment, there's no um, added advantage outside of it being low carbon for generating power via hydrogen versus generating power from unabated gas, for example. There's, there's no direct incentive to do that other than the cost of carbon. So when we look at um, the uses for the system, um, from our perspective, we see power CCS as probably slightly less flexible, so less peaker uh, related, and that's because of the nature of the, the the carbon capture circuit on the back end. Having said that, some of the work we're doing at SSE uh, in partnership with uh, Sheffield University and uh, at the Monk Stud facility, you know, is actually looking at how flexible, how dispatchable, what is the impact on capture rates of ramp up and ramp down, how to almost create an independent CCS circuit so that you can keep it warm, you know, all of which is trying to improve the efficiency and being able to operate a power CCS, CCGT, in exactly the same way as we currently operate our existing CCGT. So we've had to adjust the way we operate our existing fleet to respond to the changing nature of the demand from national grid. And very much as we see renewables increase, we're no longer at the 50, 60, 70% load factors. We're now sitting already at the 20, 30, 40% load factors. So we're doing that already with our existing fleet. And so we're now pushing uh, the boundaries of what power CCS is available for. But it is fair to say that hydrogen, that ability to just switch on and switch off, you don't have that back end complexity of the CCS circuit on the back. So it should be more flexible in that respect. So it was a very long winded answer to your question, but there is both the sort of policy, first of a kind technology side of, of it that differentiates power CCS relative to hydrogen. And then there's the actual use of it given the, um, the, the, the difference between what is a power CCS circuit and the slightly more complex nature of it. It's a two-part process, whereas you're just burning hydrogen um, in, a, in a, a gas turbine effectively for, for, for hydrogen. So it's a simpler process. And the only other thing I'll finish on is efficiency, which is depending upon what your source of hydrogen is, what your cost of that of producing that hydrogen, it, it is fair to say it, especially if you're looking at blue hydrogen as your source, that, that if you're standing back and saying, should I take natural gas, turn it into hydrogen to use up electricity in doing so, to then burn it again to make electricity, that's, a very, that's less efficient than saying, shall I take that natural gas and just make power? 
However, if you can produce hydrogen at very low cost because you're doing it through uh, offshore wind that is surplus to requirements when electricity prices are negative, for example, overnight, then you can produce that hydrogen very cheaply. And if you can store that hydrogen and then burn it when electricity prices are high because demand is very high or because there isn't wind and offshore wind to, to supply it, well, then actually it becomes very economic. So the important differentiator between hydrogen is it effectively allows you to load shift renewables. And that's not uh, a capability that power CCS has. And so that's, that's an additional sort of, I don't know whether you call it an advantage or nuance that makes actually looking at both technologies uh, logical because they, they meet slightly different system needs um, in terms of uh, what they're delivering. No, I think your, your final point was a very good one there. They both, from everything that you've explained um, and also from the work that Aurora's done, we feel that they are both very important technologies for the system to have because of the fact that CCS could operate at higher load factors. It can serve a, a certain role on the system. Um, hydrogen's sort of quick ramping rates uh, and potential ability to, um, to be shifting uh, generation from intermittent renewables does also provide a, a good complement both to renewable generation, uh, but also to um, CCS in the future. Uh, so it sounds like both are going to be required, but potentially there is some more work that needs to be done in the policy space. Um, and I would be interested towards the end of the podcast to talk a bit more about what sort of progress um, that is going to be needed in 2023 uh, in that space. But before we get on to that, um, you've already brought up the fact that uh, SSE, um, with the acquisition of Triton, is looking at some um, hydrogen projects. Um, I'd be interested to hear what other work uh, SSE is doing in this space um, in the near term future. Absolutely. And I'd be very glad to tell you, Emma. Um, and and if, you, if you'll allow me, I'll tell you both what we're doing in hydrogen and on CCS. So, so I'll start with hydrogen because you started with hydrogen. So it's in no way describing my preference. I am agnostic. Uh, uh, so so on, on the hydrogen side, um, as you said, we, we um, were successful in acquiring Triton back in, um, well, the deal closed in September with Equinor, our partner Equinor. One of the reasons it was so attractive to us was partly because we are looking effectively to position the Humber um, as really the leader uh, or a leader, but I would like to say the leader in terms of the hydrogen economy in, in the UK. Now I, I recognize that we're also, there's also the high net cluster on the um, West Coast, but, but from the perspective of really driving both the hydrogen ecosystem, um, uh, I'll call it, you know, what you need for a successful ecosystem is key elements of the value chain. So at the moment, policy is very much focused on production. And so you've got all of this sort of rush of projects being announced, small, medium, large, on the production side. But where we see a real gap or uh, did see and continue to see a real gap is is who are your off takers and who importantly are your anchor off takers you know how do how do you persuade large industry heavy industry that has to invest in this new technology that it is worth switching over to hydrogen versus continuing to um, uh, emit carbon 
Um, and what you really need is a sort of, if you build it, they will come scenario, but you need the first person to come. You need your anchor demand. And that's where ultimately we see power as as act, actually providing that anchor demand. It may not be the most efficient use of hydrogen, although I've just argued why I think it will be an efficient use of hydrogen in the long term, depending on uh, the price uh, it costs to produce hydrogen. Um, but it, it can do it very quickly. And so Triton um, sits right next to Equinor's H2H Salt N Blue Reformer. And it was a key off taker in terms of blending hydrogen uh, into the CCGT, and it, it had already articulated a, a strategy to deliver that by 2027. So for us, what it what it clearly uh, um, made clear, or what what it what it allowed us to do, was start to piece together pieces of the puzzle. So, so Triton is one, you know, an existing CCGT uh, salt end power station sitting next to H2H salt end with a with a, a now. Um, firm strategy, which wasn't firm under a US private equity company, but is now firm under SSE and Equinor, to be looking to blend up to 30% of hydrogen by 2027. Um, you then look at what else we're doing in the Humber. So we uh, own the Orbra and Attic gas storage um, sites um, that sit just uh, to the north of the Humber. So Aubra we own as a 66-33 joint venture with Equinor, with uh, SSE being the operator. And we announced back in 2021 a plan to expand um, the cavern storage, but with the intention of storing hydrogen in this phase two expansion with up to 320 gigawatt hours of, of um, hydrogen that would then effectively allow you to provide a buffer store to then supply hydrogen to the Humber. So that hydrogen storage project, the aim would be that you're bringing that on before 2030. Um, and it's able to uh, then effectively um, really um, support the broader ecosystem within the Humber. So then we were looking at, okay, so what are the other things that need to be filled in in order to make this hydrogen ecosystem effective? And so then you look at the challenges of green hydrogen and the intermittent nature of production. And you also look at demand and particularly demand from hydrogen to power, the intermittent nature of demand. And you say, okay, well, you're gonna need storage to act as that buffer in order to be able to allow for these to be producing at different rates. Um, and you're gonna need to work out how to optimize that, what level and scale of um, electrolysis, couples with what level and scale of demand and what level scale of storage allows you to lower the cost of the whole system. And so that led us to what we announced um, just before Christmas and we've put into the Net Zero Hydrogen Fund is the Albra Hydrogen Pathfinder project. Now, what this is, is 35 megawatts of electrolyzer, grid electrolyzer, electrolysis, feeding into a converted salt cavern um, at Albra that then feeds into um, a 50 megawatt OCGT. Um, and we have um, uh, feed underway with Siemens and Black and & Veatch uh, in order to be able to deliver that under, and if it's successful in the net zero hydrogen fund uh, by uh, having electrolysis uh, hydrogen production by the end of 2025 with uh, the OCGT up and running by 2026, selling low carbon power into the grid um, um, by 2026. So, so that allows us 
to really prove the whole ecosystem, as it were, to then be able to scale that up and support what is the hydrogen storage project by 2030, what is the blue hydrogen um, project potentially for Equinor, H2H Solten by 2728, you've got Triton uh, as Solten's blending. So really, you, you know, what I'm trying to articulate here is a whole load of projects that when you piece them together and you look at the timing of them, is it's really creating a vision for what could be um, the first and what I hope will be a fast growing and accelerate the reality of a hydrogen economy in the Humber region of uh, the UK. Uh, I'm just coupling that. We're also now uh, uh, considering what other options we have in Ireland as well. And so at the moment, Irish... Um, policy on hydrogen is is much earlier stage um, than it is in the UK, but they have been quite clear that they they prefer hydrogen to power CCS because they don't have the same uh, gas fields to store um, the carbon dioxide as as we do in the North Sea. Although they are looking into it and they, and they do have some gas fields, but but they've they've chosen hydrogen as a priority. And so now we're looking at our Tarbot um, asset and understanding what the potential for hydrogen there is in the future and making sure that, that it could be hydrogen ready when that policy is supportive. So, so this is just a, a few of the projects um, that are, are in the pipeline, but I hope illustrates just how serious we're taking this and how far we want to move forward on the hydrogen space. Now, I know I've spoken for a long time, so I'll just briefly talk about the power CCS side of things. We have Keepy 3 also in the Humber, that is a power CCS project. So Keepy 1, Keepy 2 uh, are our current power stations. So Keepy 2 is commissioning as we speak. Um, we would, it's the most efficient unabated gas power station in Europe. Um, the next phase would be Kippy 3. It's been shortlisted in part of the Track 1 industrial cluster process. We're waiting and hoping for the final selection in February, thereabouts. We're in negotiations with Bayes at the moment over the dispatchable power agreement, but that would be a power CCS project uh, with the carbon dioxide going through the shared carbon dioxide, dioxide transport and storage infrastructure associated with the um, East Coast cluster. Um, We've also got Peterhead 2. Um, so these are both, these are joint ventures with Equinor as well. Peterhead 2 is currently in the reserve status from a cluster process. Um, the Scottish cluster is in reserve uh, status, but we're hoping uh, the government will announce the track two process. But we're looking at a carbon capture and storage project up at Peterhead, which is one of our current power stations. And then finally, I, what I didn't mention is Keepy 4 would be a hydrogen CCGT sitting adjacent to Keepy 3 at that same location. In order to deliver that, it's reliant on the pipeline infrastructure and also that storage solution uh, we talked about. And so that would come later. Um, probably closer to the end of this decade um, as a reality. So, so we have multiple things between sort of 2025, 2027, 2029 and 2030 plus really delivering low carbon thermal solutions that will allow us to phase out some of our um, unabated capacity that uh, we're currently running. And I was particularly sort of interested on your comments on how the market is developing in Ireland and how mm. other governments um, are also considering this problem because obviously carbonizing the power sector is not just a problem um, that we're thinking about here in GB. It, it is 
these are questions that are being asked right around the world. Um, and, and so it is interesting to get that perspective about um, the considerations that are being undertaken by other countries. Uh, and also interesting just to hear your perspective on, on some of the blockers there that you've mentioned as well. So making sure that storage has been developed so that the next phase of, of power um, projects um, could potentially be rolled out. So kind of following on from that, like, are there any other sort of key blockers that you might want to highlight there? Uh, well, I think just to emphasize what you've just said, the biggest challenge we've got is really um, policy and legislation and key decisions being made. Um, so, so we have a pipeline of projects, but whether or not they go forward is really dependent upon one, whether we have the legislation in place, for example, for the transport and storage infrastructure, um, for um, the dispatchable power agreements that they're negotiating. So not only are we dependent upon government decisions on how this new low carbon power is going to contribute to the system, you know, market reform, we've just had a consultation announced on the capacity mechanism. You know, there's a whole load of stuff that has to go on to really reshape the power market to be able to adapt to a, a low carbon um, decarbonized environment that is yet to happen and and that's at a very high level there are lots of specifics we don't have a business model yet for hydrogen storage there is nothing specific that would incentivize hydrogen to power for example um, you, you know we're going down the dispatchable power agreement for power ccs but there isn't an equivalent um, for, for other forms of low carbon thermal generation so so these are all the things that uh, need to take place so so we need policy and legislation to shape what that future looks like to give us the certainty that then allows our, our investment decisions to be made so so we can have this pipeline we can push it to the point of making a final final investment decision but we can't go to our boards without some clarity ultimately on how you make your return over time um i think the other key area that concerns me when I look to the future is really the OEMs and their ability to deliver on all of this, their, their willingness to take risk, the impact on supply chain of inflation, of the challenges of recovering from COVID. Um, you know, there are all these challenges that say it might, it might be very well to make these big announcements and talk about targets that we're going to deliver X by 2030. But if we don't have the suppliers of the equipments, if we don't have the skilled workforce, if we don't have coordination across the supply chain to actually deliver these things, then we're going to fail. And so we're working very hard with our partners to really be able to, to work out where these bottlenecks are and what we can do uh, to help them achieve ultimately the outcomes that we desire so so those are, i think were the two biggest uh, blockers what i don't think is blocking is access to capital what i don't think is blocking is societal um support oh sorry the third blocker i should have mentioned was planning and consenting which fits under the sort of policy and legislation a bit but the planning and consenting process takes a huge amount of time and unless we're going to really make sure that uh, all stakeholders are aligned and that government has a strong position on, on the how 
priorities around planning consenting are considered for energy and power, uh, we're going to end up being bogged down in, in bureaucracy and, and um, you know, dealing with, with the sort of minority voices that, that uh, often stall things. So, so those are the three blockers. But on, on the other side, investors are very supportive, society is very supportive. Um, and uh, I think at the moment there is, is capital that is willing to be put at risk in order to deliver um, this future. And, and that's probably a very different place to where we were just, say, three years ago. And that that is a big change. You know, you have industry, society and investors, you know, all key stakeholders all, all aligned to really deliver this. We, we just need to be able to sort of get moving on it. Great. Yeah. And I think that final point you made is, is important. Like, this is, uh, we are on quite a critical path here. Um, the government has got these, these targets for us to achieve net zero by 2035. Um, and, and there's a lot of ideas and a lot of policy thoughts about how we're going to get there. But often it feels like we, we don't take big enough um, sort of concrete steps in, um, in making the kind of policy decisions that people are likely to need um, in, in order to be able to make progress towards this goal. So from your perspective, what key things need to happen this year um, in order to support the development of, of low carbon flexibility in the power sector? So the first will be um, actual decisions around the track one cluster process. So I have to try and be very unbiased here. It doesn't matter if it's not our project that's chosen. They just need to go ahead and choose them and actually commit and put the relevant legislation in place in order that we can then make our financial investment, we being the broader industry, we uh, financial investment decisions either at the end of this year or beginning of next, in order to meet the timelines that they've given. So, so under the industrial cluster process, effectively they're looking for these projects to come online uh, by 2027. Time is running out. If, if these decisions aren't made now, and when I say now, I mean this quarter before the end of March, and if we don't have legislation passed that then allows for these things to get built and for the infrastructure to get built and that we don't have the planning and consenting processes moving and, and decisions made that, you know, KIDB3, for example, we've got our planning. We've managed, you know, to get through the DCO process. So, so some of these things are already there, but, but really the critical thing is that we just need those decisions made in the next few months, the dispatchable power agreements signed in order to make the FID decisions either the end of this year for our projects, beginning of next for others, um, those will be critical from a from a, the CCUS side of things. From the hydrogen side of things, it'll be around um, uh, again key decisions on the net zero hydrogen fund and the track strand three process that has gone through. Um, what funding is available, what long-term support is available through the, the uh, hydrogen production business models, some clarification on things like low carbon hydrogen, what exactly is the definition of that, how do you standardize that over time. Um, the big um, blocker or bottleneck for us is that a hydrogen business model for storage isn't planned until 2025, um, which we think is too far. Uh, away if in order to achieve the ambition the government have set out for hydrogen uh, by 2030. So that needs to be brought forward in our view. Um, 
but it, and if it isn't, then there needs to be some bridging model or some 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 interim that allows us to to move forward with uh, hydrogen storage, uh, allows others to move forward with hydrogen storage in order to enable and facilitate growth in hydrogen production and offtake uh, going into the 2030 period. So those those would be the critical things for me this year um, that need to be delivered, um, which is no mean feat. Uh, the other thing I think just to add to that is then what what is next? So on CCUS, it's track two process. What is the scale of ambition on CCUS by the government? They've talked about at least one power CCS project, but do they want more? Um, and how is it going to work? Are we going to go through the same cluster sequencing process, the same um, uh, customized DPA process, or are they going to start standardizing these things? So, so just looking for all of that. And then finally, REMA, um, so, so market reform and all elements of that, and how does that um, feed into this uh, low carbon transition discussion? It's been a really interesting conversation. I think we've summarized really well why low carbon flexibility is going to be important to the power sector and the different roles that, that gas CCS and that hydrogen CCGTs may be able to play um, and why really we're likely to need both of them in order to be able to, to operate the, the system in a safe manner. And it's been really good to hear about the sort of projects that SSE is working on um, and how you've been putting together sort of different aspects of hydrogen production, hydrogen storage, and, and how you're thinking about those projects being able to interact with each other. There are lots of positives to bring out as well. It sounds like there's a lot of things, um, a lot of people that are very keen to invest in this area. Uh, and there's a lot of appetite to see um, this particular bit of the, the power set to grow over the next few years. Um, but really, uh, if I can summarize, it's probably really in the policy space. Um, we need to see the most progress in this year. And I think you've highlighted the, the key areas um, that policymakers could be thinking about. So I'd like to take a moment to thank Catherine for joining us and also just to highlight the fact that I will be speaking with SSE Renewables um, in the next few weeks to continue the conversation and to focus particularly on uh, how hydrogen uh, and renewables could interact going forward. So thank you, Catherine. Thank you very much, Emma, and thanks for the opportunity. That was Emma Woodward, project leader on Aurora's advisory team talking to Catherine Raw, Managing Director of SSE Thermal. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.